Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We're happy and thankful that you're with us today. We have a number of announcements I want to call your attention to, the first being that Stuart and Ashley Reese officially became members of our church this past Monday, so we want to welcome them. If you want to wave at everybody, <laughs> if you don't know them, there they are. Um, also, the youth will meet tonight for their Thanksgiving Bonanza, I love that name, at 6 p.m., uh, at Matt and Elizabeth's house. Uh, we will have no midweek service this week because of Thanksgiving. Um, our joy group has planned a trip to Mississippi State, the Mississippi State Christmas Choral Concert on Tuesday, uh, November 28th at First Baptist Church in Starkville. Please let Midge Davis know by Monday, November 20th if you would like to attend. Uh, we're wrapping up our Operation Christmas Child boxes this week. And uh, finally, announcements-wise, for the women in the church, this is not in your bulletin. Monday evening, November 27th, the ladies are going to decorate the church for Christmas. Uh, at 5.30 p.m., light refreshments will be served. So on the 27th at 5.30 p.m., if you're a lady and you could be here, please join us to help decorate for the Christmas season. Also, the women in the church will have their December Joint Circle uh, meeting on Monday, December 4th at 1 p.m. in the choir room. Um, also, uh, light refreshments will be, will be served, and they will prepare Christmas gifts for shut-ins. And again, that's no, December 4th at 1 p.m. Uh, in terms of our worship service this morning, I just wanted to call your attention to a couple of things. Uh, the first being we will open our service by singing Psalm 100. And traditionally, Psalm 100, its heading in the Bible is a psalm for giving thanks, and so this has been sung uh, for Thanksgiving for millennia now. just want to call your attention to that. And also during the doxology section, after the offering, we will sing the Gloria Patri. Um, if, if you're not familiar with that, you'll become familiarized with it today, and occasionally we will sing that in the spot where our doxology goes during the service. That's all I have by way of announcements. Again, welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts for worship.
Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Would you please pray with me? God, you are indeed good. Your steadfast love for us endures forever. You are faithful to us and to your people for all generations. We're here this morning to bless your name, to worship you, to glorify you in what we think, say, and do in this time of worship. So would you give us your Holy Spirit in a full measure? Would you guide us and lead us to hear from your word in a new way, in a fresh way? Would you challenge us and shape us and encourage our hearts? And would you lead us through this time of worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn together, which is hymn number one, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. Let's sing hymn number one. be seated. If you would take your bulletins, we'll continue in our service with our confession of faith, and this is what we believe that God teaches us through his word about himself, about the world, and about us. So I would ask you, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, each year, one of my favorite stories, uh, when I think about Thanksgiving, is the story of Jesus and the lepers. In, in particular, the leper, the one leper who turned back after being healed by Jesus to give thanks. So I'm going to read this passage and then lead us in a time of prayer. This is God's word. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our merciful and good, loving and caring God. You took on human flesh to live among hurting people, to become a hurting person. You understood our suffering because you've suffered yourself. Lord God, you know our sadnesses. You've experienced sadness and sorrow. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this great love with which you love us. Would you help us to turn back like the one outcast leper, to fall at your feet, to praise you with a loud voice and give you thanks? God, as we read and heard, only one of the lepers responded to your mercy and love with gratitude and thankfulness. And so we confess that we are often not thankful people, but in Christ you take our thankless hearts and you give us hearts of gratitude and worship. And you promise to continue working in us through your Spirit, growing our hearts in this gratitude. So Father, we pray that you would give us new hearts, and that you would fill our conversations this week, especially over the holiday, with thanks to you. Lord, we have all we need and could ask for in you, and yet you delight to give us good things. And for many of us, you've given us family and friends, food and homes and clothing, education, fun hobbies like hunting, uh, maybe music, whatever it might be, Lord, you have been so good to each one of us, and we thank you for these things. We pray that you would give us opportunities to talk about your grace this week to family and friends who need you and don't know you, or simply just need to hear your encouragement. Some of us here will have to sit at the table on Thanksgiving with people who we'd rather not even see, let alone talk to. And so we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy, that you would be with your people during these difficult moments, that you would cause living water to sprout in these deserts, that you would help us to love our enemies, to forgive others, and to rest in the assurance of your justice 
and vengeance for all sin. Lord, many of us here will celebrate Thanksgiving with one less person at the table, and we pray especially, Father, that you would comfort them during a difficult time this week. It's so hard to be thankful, Lord, yet you call us to this spiritual task. And we read again in your word, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray. Would you give us these hearts, this heart to give you praise and honor and glory, to rejoice always, to continue praying without ceasing as your body. We thank you for this time of worship. We pray you would be with each of your people this week over this uh, special holiday and that you would bless us, bless your people uh, with the kind gift of conversation, uh, a good meal, and a good time with family and friends. Lord, we are grateful to be in this time of worship, and we pray that you would bless the rest of this time. Be with your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you please stand for our next hymn, which is hymn 715. Come, ye thankful people, come. Please stand for hymn 715.
You may be seated. We'll take up our tithes and offerings this morning, and of course, with this Thanksgiving this week, God instructs us to give out of hearts, of thankful hearts, and God is the one who gives us those hearts to be thankful. So as you have been blessed and shown God's grace, give back now as God uh, instructs us.
Please pray with me. God, we give from thankful hearts for all that you have blessed us with, for all that you have promised us, uh, for how you are with us even now. So would you take these tithes and offerings and use it for your kingdom's sake, for the gospel to be proclaimed, for people's needs to be met, uh, for whatever it is that you would have these tithes and offerings do, Lord. Would you bless these for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 16. And while you're turning, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray now that for the sake of Jesus Christ, you would send your spirit to breathe life into our souls, to illumine our minds, to strengthen our hearts as we look at your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 16. Hear God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, 
Here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was, 60, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this ends the reading of God's word. So in this passage, we meet an Egyptian slave girl who belongs to Abram and Sarai. And here's what the text tells us about Hagar. She is pregnant. She is suffering. She is alone and lonely. She's on the run. And she's heading toward a wall. But by the end of the chapter, her life is totally transformed. And she's able to go back to the place where she experienced all of her pain. And she's able to do it standing tall and with poise with confidence, and with dignity. So the question is, how did it happen? Well, the simple answer is that Hagar saw God. And when she saw God, she says she saw the God who saw her. Well, how can that happen to us? How can we see God, the God who sees us? Well, three points to answer that question. We talk about the problem with our sight the miracle of sight, and the result of sight. So number one, the problem of sight. So in chapter 15, God reminded Abram of his promises to him. That Abram is going to have a son in his old age, and that he's also going to inherit, his descendants are going to inherit the promised land. And God gave Abram two visible pictures to confirm his promises to Abram. In terms of his descendants, his son, he told him to look up at the stars and see if he could number them. And he said to Abram, so many will your descendants be as the stars in the heaven. And then he told him to look at sacrificed animals. We looked at this in detail last week. Abram laid out an elaborate covenant ceremony that involved sacrificed animals lying on the ground and essentially God was telling Abram, Look at these sacrificed animals. My promise to you is so firm. I'm so committed to you that not only I'm willing to die in order to keep my promises to you. And it says in Genesis 15 that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then you get to the next chapter, our passage, and what's happening? Sarai and Abram are half living like non-believers. Because instead of trusting in God to fulfill his promise in his way, they're taking matters into their own hands. And Sarai concocts this pragmatic scheme uh, to take her slave girl, Hagar, and give her to Abram as a wife, and now believing that the promised child, by natural means, will come through Hagar. So they apparently picked up this girl, Hagar, during their travels to Egypt. And all seems to be going well until that slave girl, Hagar, actually becomes pregnant. And according to Sarai, it looks like she got a little pep in her step after this and started to puff herself up and trifle with Sarai, proud of herself. And so Sarai responds with just venom towards Hagar. Like if, if she ever thought this was, was going to go well, 
You got to ask yourself, how on earth? But she did. And verse 6 of our passage says that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. That phrase, dealt harshly, comes from the same Hebrew word used to describe what happened to Joseph when he was put in chains and imprisoned, and what happened to the Israelites, what they were suffering under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. So Sarai was making Hagar's life miserable. She was being oppressed, Hagar was, and afflicted. And so Hagar runs away. She's apparently heading back to Egypt because verse 7 says she stopped at the spring on the way to Shur, which was a border town, a border city outside of Egypt with protective walls. It's actually named after its protective walls. Shur literally means wall. So figuratively, literally, Hagar is running into a wall. She's pregnant. She's been severely afflicted. She's alone and lonely. She's on the run, and she's heading toward a wall. It's the bleakest of circumstances you could portray. But then she has this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Starting in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? For centuries, commentators and preachers have noted that the angel of the Lord, whose first appearance this is in the Old Testament, by the way, is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And like with Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell, in his grace, he's coming to Hagar asking her questions. Why are you here? What is happening to you? And it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he's trying to draw her out from this pain that she's experienced. And here's her answer in verse 8. Hagar says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, Surely I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He gives her this massive promise about his grace and kindness toward her. And here's how Hagar responds. Verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. There's debate about how that phrase, a God of seeing, should be translated. But Derek Kidner, who wrote my go-to commentary on the book of Genesis, this is what he says. The angel of the Lord is now disclosed to have been the Lord himself. This is God. And Hagar's words reflect her awe at that fact. It is God as seen. Hagar's words run literally, you are a God of sight. In other words, you are a visible God. That's what Hagar's saying. Her words don't agree with the children's catechism, do they? Which says, can you see God? And the answer is what? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. These words also run counter to what every atheist in the world says. God cannot be seen. They say that there isn't a God precisely because they can't see him. Give an example. I came across an interview with Kerry King, who is a, a famous guitar player from the band Slayer. And he said this. 
He was asked if, he, if some sort of philosophy he had governed the way he played music. This was his answer. I don't really have a philosophy. My thing is just rebelling against organized religion. Because personally, I think it's a crutch for people that are too weak to get through life on their own. I'm the kind of guy that says, if I don't see it, then it doesn't work. And nobody can show me God, he said. You can't show me God. Religion's just a crutch for weak people. That's what the world's saying. You know, years ago when I was a pharmacy technician, we had a lady in the pharmacy, and uh, I was moving to the register to check her out, her, ring up her prescription. And she was on the phone, which is rude, by the way, when you're checking out, just a reminder. <laughs> but she's talking away, and I can't help but overhear what she's saying, and she's actually talking to a friend, and I knew this lady, um, she's actually talking to a friend who was clearly a non-believer about the fact that one of their mutual friends had become a Christian. And she said into her phone, doesn't she realize that religion is just a crutch for weak people? That same phrase. And I'm about to ring her up and I look down at the pill bottle. <laughs> you know what it was? It was Xanax. And I have nothing, I am not decrying prescription medication lawfully prescribed by a physician. I wouldn't have worked at a pharmacy if I did. But you get the point. Religion's a crutch for weak people. You can't see God. Nobody can show me God. That's what non-believers say. But it's not just non-believers. There's a story in the New Testament of Jesus with his disciple Philip. John 14. I've always found this passage so interesting. John 14, 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that's good enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been here with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why do you say, show us the Father? There's God, Jesus Christ, standing in front of him in the flesh. He believes in Jesus. But he looks at him and says, show me God. Show me God, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am. You just don't see it. It's a spiritual sight. It's a problem for all of us. But how can we actually receive this miracle of sight that Hagar received? This is number two, the miracle of sight. Here's this poor little slave girl. And she sees him. Somebody showed her God in the midst of her suffering and her shame and her confusion on the run, about to run into a wall. There he is. She sees him. Why do we feel like we can't see him? You know, part of it is pride. Because if God actually showed himself to us, then we would actually have to change. We'd actually have to do something. We'd actually have someone we have to answer to. And I think part of it is just circumstances. We feel like when we're suffering and when we're struggling, that God simply can't be there. But this story is showing us that the exact opposite is true. God may be allowing you to go through what you're going through precisely because he wants you to see that he's there. There's a story in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. One of the early Christian preachers, the deacon, 
Stephen is going through his own, own hard time. And he would certainly have reasons to question God's presence with him as he's about to be stoned to death by a religious mob for preaching Christ. But as he's about to die, Acts 7.55 says, Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Don't you wish, when you're afflicted, on the run, about to hit a wall, that you could just look up at the sky and see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty? Like Hagar did in her troubles. Like Stephen did in his troubles. Well, John Calvin, in his commentary on this story from Acts 7, I love this quote. He's describing what happened to Stephen when his eyes were opened to see Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. It says, this is what Calvin says, For my part, I think that there was nothing changed in the nature of the heavens but that Stephen had new quickness of sight granted to him, which pierced through all obstacles, even unto the invisible glory of the kingdom of heaven. To summarize what Calvin's saying, he's saying that what happened with Stephen when he saw Christ was not a miracle of the skies. It was a miracle of the eyes. God, by his Spirit, granted Stephen the ability to see what was always there. And that's Christ at the right hand of the Father. He granted him the gift to see that Christ was with him in the midst of his suffering as he did to Hagar by this appearance of the angel of the Lord. Now C.S. Lewis has an essay on why fiction is so important and why... He began to write children's fiction in particular after years of writing about literature and philosophy and apologetics. And his basic answer to why fiction was so important is that when people read fiction, they put their guard down, which, allows, which can allow them to actually see the truth that is really there that they would never look at if they picked up a textbook. And so he kind of fleshed this out, Lewis did. In chapter 10 of one of my one of my favorite Lewis books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, it's just such a great scene. You know, so there's a group of beings called the Duffelpuds. And they're meant to be comical, as their name is comical. And they are really obnoxious. And they made the mistake of getting on the nerves of a powerful wizard. And so this wizard has cast a spell upon them that made them invisible. And so when they meet the Pevensies, when they meet Lucy, the little girl, who's you know, essentially the central character of the story next to Aslan, they ask Lucy to, to sneak into the wizard's chambers and to find a spell book and to find an incantation that made unthings, unseen things seen, to make invisible things visible. And so Lucy creeps into the chamber of the wizard. She finds the spell book. She opens it up. She finds this spell and this is what Lewis writes. She was startled to find that what stood in the doorway of the chamber was Aslan himself, the lion, the highest of all high kings. And he was solid and real and warm. And he let her 
kiss him and bury herself in his shining mane. Oh, Aslan, said she, it was kind of you to come. I've been here all the time, said he, but you've just made me visible. See, Aslan appearing wasn't a miracle of the skies, it was a miracle of the eyes. Lucy was being granted the privilege to see what had always been there, and that's that Aslan was with her all along. And see, that's the Christian life. It is straining with all that you have to see what is actually there. Because everything else seems more real to us than the most real reality. And that's that Christ is with us. Again, John Calvin talking about this miraculous vision of Stephen. He said, here we must gather a general comfort that God will be no less present with us than he was with Stephen. If forsaking the world, all our senses strive to see him. Not that he appeareth unto us by any external vision, as he did to Stephen, but he will so reveal himself unto us within that we may indeed feel his presence. And this manner of seeing ought to be sufficient for us. You see what Calvin's saying. He's saying spiritual sight is miraculous. It's something that can only be given by God. This isn't something that comes naturally. Second, he's saying that spiritual sight is a gift that has to be given to us by God. And third, he's saying that even though it's a gift, it's also something we have to seek. He says we need to strive for it with everything that we have. That's what Philip was doing with Jesus when he said, show us the Father. He wanted to see. He was seeking that sight. And Jesus says, congratulations. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. The same God who appeared to Hagar. And, you know, years ago, I'm in church, I'm preaching, and I'm telling the congregation, look at Jesus. See him. And a woman came up to me after the service and she said, you don't have any crucifixes in your church. How am I supposed to see him? That's literalist thinking. That's not what we're talking about. Like Calvin said, this isn't something that physically happens with the eyes. It's something spiritually that happens in our spirits. As the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. As we see as 2 Corinthians 3 says, the glory of Jesus Christ put before us week in and week out in the preaching of the word, in the sacraments, in the means of grace, and even in creation and in nature and in our lives. It's seeing that inwardly. That's a miracle that God grants to his people. Why should you want that? Why should you want to strain every nerve of your being toward that above all other things? Well, that's point three, the result of this sight. Why we should want it so badly. Genesis 16, verse 13, says that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Bir Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. She not only saw God, but what she saw when she saw God was a God who saw her. 
She felt alone in the world. She was out in the desert. And now she saw the greatest reality that there is. That God saw her. God looked after her. Now being seen by God is our greatest hope. And for some of us, it's our greatest fear. There's a sense in which we don't want to see him. And we don't want him to see us because we're afraid if he really saw us. Really saw us. That he would never accept us. And that we'd never make it out alive. If he really saw us, he would see the truth that deep down we are frauds, we are sinners, we are full of guilt and shame, and we don't deserve to be in his presence. But there's an answer for that problem. And you can actually see it in the story of Hagar because her story doesn't end here in Genesis. She comes up again in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, in the most surprising place. The Galatian church is dealing with a heresy that's come to be known as Judaizing by a group we call the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people who were teaching that in order to follow Christ, yes, you had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. You had to follow the dietary guidelines. You had to follow the last day of the week, Sabbath. You had to believe in Jesus, but also follow the letter of the law. In other words, salvation wasn't simply a matter of faith. For them, it was a matter of works, just as much as it was faith. What you did counted toward your standing toward God as much as what Christ did. And you know, Paul's just incensed about this. He calls them foolish. He chastises them. He said, how is it you could start your life as a Christian by faith in Christ and now start relying on works as if that's going to increase or add to your standing before God? And in Galatians 4, 21 and following, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. That's Isaac and that's Ishmael. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And if you skip down to 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're taught in seminary that you're not supposed to allegorize passages. Paul did not go to those seminaries that teach that. He literally says, you can see an allegory in this text. This text points to another reality. And that is that what happened with Abraham and Sarah was that instead of trusting God's promise that he would miraculously provide them with a son, they began to, to trust in their flesh. And see, flesh... I think when people think about what are the works of the flesh, what is the flesh? You think it's just about doing bad things. It's about sinning. It's about breaking the law. And Paul is saying it's more than that. It is self-reliance. It is believing that God can't handle this himself, so I've got to take it into my own hands and rely on my schemes and my works and my self-salvation projects 
because God can't, isn't quite up to handling and fulfilling his own promises. Paul wants us to be free from these schemes and these projects to have a direct relationship with God. He wants us to be able to stand before the all-seeing eye of God and say in the words of the hymn, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, clothed with righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. He wants us to be able to stand before God without guilt, without shame, without condemnation. And it can only come through Jesus Christ, the fact that he lived and he died for you. It's not about you living for him and dying for him. It's about the fact that he lived and died for you. It means that no matter what you're going through, if you understand this, even if you can't see him, there's always someone there who has his eyes on you and those eyes do not look on you with contempt. He is not trifling you. He accepts you as his own child. God does for the sake of what Christ has done for you. When you understand that, you know know what it's like to feel like you're all alone in the world. I mean, you ever been in a crowded room and just felt utterly alone? A few months ago, I felt that. It was when I was commuting back and forth from Nashville. And there was a Sunday afternoon where uh, my family had not come with me. And I was just feeling, you know, after you preach this little inside baseball with preachers, I mean, after you get done preaching, it can be the worst. I mean, you just go back, <laughs> you go back, you sit alone, and you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'll never learn to preach, um, which I probably won't. And you're, what on earth am I doing up there talking to these people? You know, if they knew everything about me, they'd never want to hear me preach. But I remind myself, if I knew everything about you, I wouldn't want to preach to you. I got my first audible amen. That was nice. Anyway, I'm sitting alone in my room. And of all things, like driving back, I was driving a lot. And the, the radio, they kept playing the same song over and over again at the times. And it was that 90s song, Fast Car. But this time it was Luke Combs singing it. And uh, or one day I, was, I just slowed down and actually listened to the lyrics for the first time. You ever have that happen, like stuff you heard in your childhood, you didn't take that seriously. Then you, as an adult, you listen to it and you go, this is the saddest song I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it's up there. And the chorus of that song says, I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast, felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I belonged, and I had a feeling I could be someone. And that day, I wanted my wife there with me so bad to put her arm around my shoulder. I literally ached on the inside and I didn't say some invisibility spell like Lucy and Narnia Narnia, but I did remember that someone else said I will never leave you or forsake you and that he was there to put his arm around my shoulder 
that day. And I'm talking about Jesus, if you haven't figured that out. And because of Jesus, I had a feeling that I belonged, and I had a feeling that I was someone, not because I am someone, not in myself, but because he thinks I'm someone. And he thinks you're someone too. He loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. You were the joy that was set before him that caused him to despise the shame and endure the cross. And you need to be reminded of it today. And if you don't, someone in here does. And that's what God is doing for Hagar in our story. He's putting his arm around her shoulder and saying, You belong. You are somebody. I have a plan for you. And that's what gave her the strength to go back to the place where she was oppressed and scoffed at and to stand up tall knowing that God had a plan for her life and he's willing to do the same for you. When you have to talk to that family member this week that you've avoided all year, you can do it because Christ has told you you belong and you are someone. When you have to go back to that job tomorrow that you hate with a boss who looks down his nose at you, you can do it because someone else says you are somebody. Can you see it? Can you see the God who sees you? Can you see, like in the story, Aslan is there even if you don't see him. If you can't see him, then give thanks. If you can't, then do what Calvin said. Strive with all your senses to seek his presence, and to allow him to reveal himself to you. And when he shows up, like Lucy, you'll say, thank you for coming. And he'll say, don't you see? I was already here. I've always been there. Let us pray. Father... Sometimes you proclaim your word. It's, I'm speechless, and I don't know what to say, and this is one of those times. So I just want to say thank you that you are the God who is with us, that Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us. And if there is anyone in this sanctuary this morning who doesn't know Christ, I pray that you would reveal him to them today and they would repent and believe. And for those of, uh, those of us who feel like he is distant from us, give us strength to strive with all that we have to allow yourself to reveal him to us afresh. And seeing him afresh, may we say, this is the God who has looked after us. This is the God of sight. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, which is number 125, Let All Things Now Living.
Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.